0: Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle-enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an animated and accepting life. In Tom Robbins' novel Still Life with Woodpecker, one of the main characters, Woodpecker, explains to the protagonist that there are two mantras in life, yum and yuck. And we have to choose between one of those as the basic orientation of our lives. In other words, are we going to be... Accepting of life, saying yes to wonderful things, or rejecting and critical and judgmental. And I thought of that when I was having my conversation with this week's podcast guest, Emily Lindsay, who is the lead author of a really important scientific paper on how to mitigate loneliness. So, first of all, why loneliness? Well, it turns out that loneliness is actually an epidemic in the developed world. And it's one of the leading causes of disability and early death. It uh, turns out that being lonely, being socially disconnected is about as bad as smoking a lot of cigarettes or having a crappy diet, that not being involved in social connection, not being befriended and supported by a community or by loved ones is a very unnatural thing for humans, and it can lead to a lot of problems beyond the emotional and social pain of being lonely so we can approach loneliness in two different ways one is as the public health crisis that it is where communities break down people are spending more time on gadgets they're working longer hours and for various reasons social fabric in this country and across the world is is breaking down Things that family and friends used to do for each other are being outsourced and turned into task rabbits and fivers and Ubers and Lyfts and all those other things. And we've basically taken lots of social reciprocity and commoditized it and outsourced it to the lowest bidder. And that's going to be a long haul to fix. But just like our food system, we have a very dysfunctional, unhealthy food system that leads to a lot of chronic disease. But we don't have to wait for the food system to get fixed to help ourselves and our families and our neighborhoods and our office mates to navigate through it and thrive. And so Dr. Lindsay's work is really about helping us navigate this social landscape of loneliness through things that we can do on our own, even while we're waiting for the system to get fixed or even while we're uh, elbow deep in trying to create connection. So I came across her work in an article in the New York Times that was titled loneliness is bad for your health, an app might help. And it talked about this remarkable study that parsed what about meditation or mindfulness training actually can help us be happier and reduce loneliness and increase social contact. And it turns out that the key ingredient is acceptance, which is to say not just being mindful of things, but saying yes to things and being okay with things happening even if we feel like we would rather something else happen. So this saying yes to phenomena as they arise during the mindfulness training, to yes to, oh, my back is aching, yes, uh, yes to an anxious thought about some work that I haven't yet done, um, yes to an angry feeling toward a driver who's just cut me off, That's what reminded me of the Tom Robbins quote about yum versus yuck. And I would certainly prefer to live in a more yum world than a yuck world. And I'd like to think that through my own orientation to life that I contribute to a world in which people can say yes to what is while simultaneously striving to make it better. A couple quick announcements before we Commence the conversation with Dr. Lindsay. First of all, Sick to Fit is available on Audible. You can listen to uh, five minutes of it on audible.com. Just search for Sick to Fit. If you're not yet an Audible member, you can get your first book for free. And uh, I would be delighted if it were Sick to Fit. Second thing, coach training starts this month. If you haven't yet um, registered for an enrollment interview, you can do so at wellstartcoach.com, where you can find out all about the program. And finally, another reminder that the Plant Yourself podcast is free for those who can't afford it and is supported by those who can. So if you can and you value this service and you'd like to help defray the costs, You can do so at patreon.com. Just search for Plant Yourself, or you can go to plantyourself.com and click on one of the Patreon or donate buttons on the right sidebar. All right. So let's get to mindfulness, acceptance, and yum and yuck without further ado. Emily Lindsay, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast.
1: Thank you, Howard.
0: Uh, so I was interested in your work. Um, based, on, I can't remember where I read of the study, but then I went and tried to find the study. You sent me the, uh, the the you know, the, the formal uh, scientific thing with all the ANOVAs and uh, uh-huh. t, t values and all stuff. The I, all the statistics <laughs> that I, I tried to remember what they meant from from grad school. Um, uh-huh. But the you know the basic um, concept was something that I, I just found so beautiful and intuitive and powerful, which is this idea that um, mindfulness plus self-acceptance can help us feel and be less lonely. And I just wanted to unpack all of that with you.
1: Yeah. So um, we've been interested in the pap- past couple of years um, in understanding why mindfulness training, why mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. interventions are helpful for um reducing stress, uh, uh, helping people deal with loneliness, um, uh, and, and, and so forth. Um, and the idea that motivated this study and others is that, um, we thought that the acceptance training piece of mindfulness interventions might be really the key element that makes it effective for all of these processes. So, um, bringing this uh, attitude of equanimity and acceptance um, toward our present moment experiences um, is was the idea um, that, mm. that this is why uh, mindfulness helps us to regulate our emotions and um, to help to regulate stress and potentially have um, beneficial effects for health. Right. And so we set out to test this idea by um, comparing mindfulness training Interventions um, with and without um, acceptance training. So, we had um, in this study um, a mindfulness training program that trained people to uh, pay attention and be aware of their uh, present moment body experiences, things like um, the feeling of uh, your clothes touching your skin, but also sorts of emotional body sensations that we feel. Um, so we had uh, one intervention that just trained those present moment awareness skills, and then we had another intervention that trained that plus acceptance. Um, so really, how to bring your attention to your your experiences, um, to really welcome everything that you're feeling, everything that you're experiencing, not try to push it away if it's unpleasant, um, or avoid it, or. Try to change it. Um, not doing those things, but instead, really saying yes to everything that arises and and um, being open to experiencing all of these things. Um, and that includes difficult feelings and unpleasant feelings of uh, loneliness as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there's some definitions I want to pursue, and I'm also scared to like turn this into a reductionist. Thing which is kind of one of the things that kept running through my head around this. But let's let's start with sort of the you know the the epidemiology of mm-hmm. the of of loneliness. Like what's um, you know it's a word that as soon as I say, as soon as I hear it and as soon as I say it to people, everyone goes, "Yeah, we're in an epidemic." But people don't really think about it. it yeah, it, it's not like um, you know getting hit by cars or, or planes crashing or even heart disease. It's like this very very silent
1: unseen thing yeah but if but if you do ask people to think about it um i think it's something that people can relate to even despite being more and more connected um on our phones and uh, online um a, a lot of people are feeling more disconnected um from others um and so um what we know from sort of the epidemiology literature is that uh, people who are socially isolated and people who feel lonely um, have a higher risk uh, for early mortality. So these things are really essential for our survival as humans. And. Um, we, as humans, we are, we're social beings, we need to connect with other people. Um, we always have needed to connect with other people in order to survive. And, and that sort of drive to connect with others hasn't changed. And yet, for some reason, um, these feelings that um, we're we're disconnected, and that, um, that, that these feelings of loneliness um, are on the increase.
0: Yeah, and I, and I saw some of that that research, and I was really struck by the the, the effect of loneliness on mortality. Because I generally teach people about like you know the the obvious things: what to eat, how to move, mm-hmm. sleep. And I know how to tell people how to eat, and I know how to mm-hmm. help people <laughs> exercise. But you know, until I saw this study, I was like, "Well, if people are lonely, I'm like." Well, you know, I don't know what to do. do. I'm I'm a social goofball. I don't know how to (laughs) talk to people and make friends. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not the person to ask, but it seems like you, there, there sort of was a history of mindfulness or meditation or Buddhist practice that made people less lonely.
1: Mm -hmm. A little bit. Um, and that's been the problem too. The other side of it is that, um, we haven't come up with good ways to help people who are feeling lonely, um, and we're just starting to learn ways to to try to help with these feelings um, and so there have been a couple studies published showing that mindfulness training may help to uh, diminish these feelings of loneliness, help people um, stay with the feelings. Um, mm. And and get through them, and kind of reduce that sort of distress that we feel when we think about um, feeling alone. Um, and so we wanted to follow that up and and try to understand what is it about mindfulness that that helps people who are feeling lonely. Um, and as it turns out, um, uh, accepting your your experiences. Um, being open to them, being receptive to really feeling those deep feelings, those difficult feelings um, seems to be really important. Um, And I think that's something that uh, many people don't naturally do. Um, When we're experiencing something uncomfortable, it's common to want to get rid of that feeling and, and do something to try to fix it or change it or push it away. But but, but this approach is more about just letting it be there and, and getting a little bit more comfortable with it over time um, so that it um, being alone isn't necessarily related to loneliness. So you can be alone and feel solitude. Um, you can be around a lot of other people and still feel lonely, still feel like you're not getting that connection. So um, uh, kind of it, it really it becomes this issue of, how we're treating these feelings that that we have internally um, versus kind of uh, actual behaviors and connections, yeah. um, social connections.
0: Well, wh- one of the things you talk about in the discussion in the paper is, that, is lonely, loneliness or aloneness or social isolation are sort of recursive in, the, in that when you start feeling separate from people, you then can have thoughts that can lead you to take fewer actions to connect and that, mm-hmm. and that and then feeling you know if and then the idea that being alone is perceived as a as a evolutionary threat so mm-hmm. therefore now we see the environment as scarier and so now mm-hmm. we're less likely to reach out in connection
1: mm-hmm. um, yeah but i think that's a great summary um it, it is a threatening feeling. Um, feeling alone is, is threatening. And, and when we feel threatened, that can increase um, our vigilance to pick out the negative things that are happening in, in social interactions. When we're talking to somebody, uh, maybe we're more aware of uh, the negative aspects of what's happening. Or um, maybe, maybe that threat makes us want to avoid people, so that we don't have to um, deal with uh, the potentially um, distressing conversation or the the negative um, side effects of negative social interactions. Um, So there's all sorts of um, processes at play that can kind of keep us in this cycle of um, feeling alone, not wanting to reach out to connect with others. making us feel even more alone.
0: So so is part of this like an evolutionary mismatch? Like when I think of fight or flight, I think of this beautiful dance of of chemicals and perception that for for most of human history, for most of of biological history has kept organisms safe and alive and able to reproduce, right? There's a threat, Mm -hmm. I'm either gonna run away from it or prepare to defend myself against it. And now mm-hmm. we know that fight or flight in a world of of emails and alarm clocks and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and passive aggressive staff meetings is actually you know deleterious is did the same thing happen with our sort of loneliness circuitry
1: yeah, possibly because initially um, I mean the idea is that loneliness evolved as um, a sort of motivation to reconnect with others. Mm. So that that's kind of the original purpose of that feeling. Um, We if we're kind of losing the connection with other people in our community that that we rely on um, for support and uh, survival. um, If we're losing that, the feeling of loneliness uh, happens to kind of signal or motivate Um, the need to reconnect with others. So that's the initial idea evolutionarily that, that loneliness should motivate us to go out and seek others. But I think that it's so easy to avoid others too, because on the flip side, like I said, loneliness is this threatening feeling. Um, And there's so many ways that we can um, deal with that threatening feeling now, Um, that don't involve restoring our social connections and trying to restore social connections. So um, there's many other stimuli in the environment that we can use to try to reduce that threatening feeling of loneliness that that have nothing to do with social connection. We can shop, we can um, play video games, watch TV. Um, So get that sense that um, we are connecting with others, but... But um,
0: what, about, what about social media? Is that also sort of a, a pornographic substitute for actual connection?
1: I don't know. I'm up in the air about that one. I think people um, have different reactions and get different things from social media. And I think for some people, um, uh, they do get that feeling of connection from social media. And for others, they feel increasingly isolated um, by looking at other people's um, Wonderful lives on social media and so uh-huh. forth. Um, so yeah. I think that that could go either way, depending on the person.
0: Mm. So I mean, one of the things I was thinking of is when I was reading the study is like this is a social problem that we're trying to solve individually, right? To a, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know that like if you were like so in the in the back in the day when loneliness was motivation to reconnect, you had your tribe kinda yeah. kind of everyone was needed, like whether you liked you know mm-hmm. grunt over there or not, you needed him to go and do stuff yeah. uh-huh and and so and that now we have we like nobody's necessary anymore, and yeah,
1: it feels that way, doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> um it does feel redundant uh and and I think i mean, I think that's a uh, related but separate issue is kind of. How do we find meaning in our lives um, if, if what we're doing um, isn't um, visibly contributing to um, a small community? If, hmm. if, if our role isn't to be the person who goes and kills an animal um, and butchers it for everyone to eat. Um, and so, yeah, I think these are complicated issues as, as our society changes from the way that we evolved
0: yeah, well I I'm thinking trying to relate it to this idea of acceptance and self-acceptance. Just like in your tribe, it's it was kind of binary, I guess. You were either ex- like if you were ostracized, you know, you had done something terrible or you were just a total leech. You mm-hmm. know, as op- as opposed to like, yeah, we're not crazy about you, but we need you. And like there was this substrate of acceptance of a sort of unconditional you're part wow. of our group. So therefore, there was like there was safety in In reconnecting, whereas now, like we have to generate the acceptance ourselves because it's Mm -hmm. not inherent in in the water we swim in.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point um, that um, if we're not perceiving others around us to be necessarily accepting of us, that makes reconnecting with others even more threatening. And it makes it an issue for our own feelings of acceptance towards what, what we're experiencing ourselves, Um, so having, um, a sort of accepting attitude coming from others, um, maybe, um, maybe acceptance of one's own thoughts and feelings and experiences wasn't an issue, um, if, if, uh, if it was never at risk, um, uh, from others.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the, the study design itself. So you said you had, you had it was like three arms. You had your control, which was sort mm-hmm. of co- cognitive stuff. Then you had um, the monitoring, the sort of mindfulness, and then mindfulness plus acceptance. Now for for mindfulness by itself, I I guess I don't know if I was taught this or if I figured it out somehow. But for me, mindfulness always included accepting the feeling so like what what are people if they're being mindful but not accepting it sounds like it's horrible
1: oh okay so the the condition the intervention with um this present focused attention monitoring and acceptance that is what we consider to be standard mindfulness training then we created another condition that didn't have acceptance training uh-huh. um, and that that enabled us to test what is the role of including acceptance training versus just having people bring their uh, attentional focus to their present moment experiences. And it wasn't necessarily not accepting, but uh, what we didn't do was train people how to be accepting of their experiences. We didn't give any techniques for learning how to do that. And so I think, um, I think what's at play is that you have people kind of strengthening uh, their attention um, uh, in the condition without acceptance Um, but then the rest of it was left to people's, um, uh, already existing sorts of strategies for coping or, uh, for regulating emotion. So, and, and I think that, um, oftentimes that isn't accepting. Um, so, um, if you think about, um, sitting in meditation, um, for say 45 minutes and, you're, it becomes painful, your back starts to ache, your hips start to ache, your legs are going to sleep, um, maybe you don't like the direction that your thoughts are running away with. Um, and so there's a lot of uncomfortable experiences. And one way to, to kind of um, treat these experiences is with acceptance, allowing them to run their course, allowing them to be there, acknowledging them, um, uh, being present with them and, and welcoming them, being open to all of that stuff being there. Um, we can think about um, being aware of all of these uncomfortable experiences, but having a mental attitude of um, I don't want to feel this pain. Why am I feeling this way? Why are my thoughts going over there? That's a non-accepting attitude. Um, even though we're paying attention to what's happening in our bodies and our, in our minds, um, uh, it's not easy to be open to what we're experiencing. And so that's the part that we are really training in the the condition with acceptance techniques.
0: Right. See, here, here's what I find interesting is like you said you had to create – a sort of uh you know a semi-disabled form of mindfulness that didn't include the natural part of acceptance. And yet mm-hmm. from my experience and in talking to lots and lots of people, that's our experience of mindfulness of meditation. Like I, I spent three years as a meditator where the theme of today's meditation is I'm a shitty meditator and what's wrong with me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like so I got really curious because what I what I got from that first article that I read was that there is there are tools that I didn't know about, maybe even just like a sentence or a word or something that could sort of reinforce acceptance mm-hmm. in ways that even though like I'd heard it from the teacher, I heard it from mm-hmm. the Jack Kornfeld tape, like, yes, yes, yes. But when I'm in it, I'm still judging myself harshly oh, yeah. and uh-huh. and miserable and like, oh, it must be 20 minutes by now. I'll just take a quick glance at my watch and it's like, oh, it's uh-huh. been three.
1: Yeah. No, I that is a very common experience. But But then the idea is that you're working towards um, Mm non-judgment. You're working towards receptivity. Um, And what we did in this study was provide a couple of concrete techniques for um, getting people into a more accepting state of mind. Um, And we did that through some body feedback, um, even just um, bringing awareness to a sense of openness and relaxation in your body, Um, even if you have little um, areas of pain, um, trying to um, hold an upright, alert posture while um, relaxing everything else to the best of of your ability and really being open to whatever um, subtle sensations arise um, uh, throughout the body. And that kind of primes the mind. that. By intentionally creating a, a feeling of openness and relaxation in the body, it kind of feeds into the mind, um, creating a sort of relaxation and openness in the mind. Um, so that um, even if we're even if we're having thoughts that about um, I'm a shitty meditator, um, you can be open to that thought, watch it come, watch it go, um, not get too attached to it. Um, and so it's really about this receptivity to whatever, whatever arises in your experience. That's fine. Um, that's okay. I'll accept that. I'll welcome that even. Um, we also allowed, um, we asked people to, um, use a very simple spoken label. Um, this is another common meditation instruction that, um, to, to label, um, what we're experiencing and really that helps us to stay with and track and monitor what we're experiencing uh, so that our minds don't wander away. Um, But we ask people to deliberately use a gentle tone of voice uh, with themselves. So uh, if people were um, focused on their body experiences, they used a simple label of feel. Uh, as I'm feeling something, for example. So um, what you can do is speak that word out loud, use the same gentle tone of voice um, in response to anything that you're feeling. Uh, If you're feeling pain, um, you simply say feel in a very gentle tone of voice with yourself. So again, you're feeding back into yourself this idea that everything is okay. Anything that I'm experiencing is okay. Um, uh, and, and kind of treating it with kindness. Um, and we also used another label, which was yes. Uh, that's another thing that you can try in your own meditation practice. Just um, track your experiences and every time you notice something, say yes. Hmm. And that's a very welcoming um, word. You're not saying, no, I don't want to feel this. I'm so frustrated right now. We're very calm with ourselves and we're, we're using um, our tone of voice and our words to kind of feed back into our mental attitude um, to really embody this attitude of welcoming and acceptance and equanimity. Um, and so even if um, I think I think what happens um, is we hear these instructions to be open, be receptive to whatever happens, but it's really difficult to implement. So I think just by using some of these simple techniques, it gives you a sort of flavor of what it feels like to be accepting, what it feels like to be welcoming, and then um, and then once you get a feel for it, um, you can kind of generate that sort of um, attitude um, in your practice a lot more easily than trying to cognitively think about what does that even mean to not be judgmental? Like, how do I even do that? Um, uh, I think it's, it's difficult to know how to do that. Um, and that in itself can be frustrating. So, um, just using outward cues to feedback, um, to our own experiences can be really useful for for giving us a taste of what it feels like to have equanimity.
0: And I imagine, I think, I think I know from personal experience, but I imagine that saying feel in response to something that otherwise I would say, oh, damn, not yeah. that again. And <laughs> yes, like it provides immediate feedback that's kind of mm-hmm. nice.
1: Yeah. Like this is okay. Um, but it's as simple as that. <laughs> um and that that pain may or may not go away um and that's okay too but um I think with with some of our emotional reactions um they're pretty fleeting and so we can endure an uncomfortable emotion um watch it peak and watch it begin to diminish over time. And by staying with it in that way, I think that's kind of empowering to, to be able to, um, see the time course of, uh, something uncomfortable that arises and, uh, diminishes over time.
0: Well, to me, I mean, it's crucial to the work that I do trying to get people to change the way they eat. Like that's what you just mm-hmm. said is the central skill. Mm. It's cause people aren't Eating, you know, it's not real body hunger signals most of the sure. time. Right. It's I've got this feeling, emotion, thought, sensation that I want to not notice. And food uh-huh. is a really good distraction.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Right. Or or whatever else my vice is.
1: Right. Just grabbing for the phone and looking at pictures or reading whatever on social media. Yeah. All distractions. Um, and that they- can be that can be effective, too, Um uh, I think people use a variety of strategies. Um, acceptance is one strategy. Um, sometimes we're not ready to experience what we're feeling. and Sometimes we do want to distract ourselves a little bit, and um, that's okay, too.
0: <laughs> right. And I, I was thinking as I was reading it, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Peter Levine. Um, uh, he I uh think wrote- so. He, I'm looking, he wrote a book on an unspoken voice, a book i think um waking the tiger it's a, It's sort of um about stress and trauma in the body, and one of the points that he makes is that people are very, very resistant to feeling emotions because mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of self story about the emotion like i shouldn't mm-hmm. feel guilt or shame, mm-hmm. but when, when people drop underneath it into sensation, and if you say, well, mm-hmm. when you feel depressed or shame ashamed or angry what is that in your body yeah and the people are much more able to tolerate when they translate the same thing into the physical sensations that they give the word the label to Mm -hmm. i wonder if you if you found that in in the research that when that people are sort of the body sensations are kind of a way in to everything else
1: yeah i think that's a good point um right when you can kind of reframe a difficult emotion as just a sensation that will pass that's changing that's um uh or that's that's not changing but just kind of focusing in on the quality of that sensation um uh for one thing takes us out of our heads if we can maintain focus on the sensation in the body um maybe we're not ruminating or judging so much um in our minds um, or maybe we still are <laughs> um, because that's essentially the end that's the essence of what we have people do in the um, monitor only intervention the the present focused awareness uh, training uh, without acceptance is bring the focus of their attention to their body sensations um, But without kind of an instruction in um, uh, the mental attitude around um, how to greet those sensations, um, uh, we didn't find that the two-week training um, in just present moment body awareness was effective. Uh, Perhaps with longer periods of training, though, um, that technique could end up being um, effective for handling emotions mm-hmm.
0: well yeah but the idea of two weeks of training is very appealing you know from a public health standpoint oh sure as, yeah. as, <laughs> as opposed to you know six years in the himalayas right
1: a lifetime practice of, yeah um,
0: so <laughs> what was like so it was like a daily smartphone app experience for about how long
1: 20 minutes a day uh, plus a little bit of homework practice and that was very simple stuff just kind of Um, remembering to apply these, um, practices in daily life, uh, for a couple minutes. Um, so maybe when you are, um, having a conversation with somebody, um, try to notice what you're feeling in your body and, and try to, um, welcome those, those experiences. Um, so it, it was very short, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, uh, Two weeks, 20 minutes a day, and just an exploration of how these practices might be applied in daily life. Mm
0: -hmm. And so when you you found that not only did people um, describe themselves as less lonely, but when you asked them to count their interactions with others, that it it, it went up. Because one of the things I was thinking Mm -hmm. was, like, maybe people are saying they're less lonely just because they like themselves more. Hmm. Right? Like uh, you,
1: know, I, cause, cause I, I, you know,
0: I like people who say yes, whose as basic outlook on life is yes, much more than I like people whose basic outlook on life is no. Okay. Um, but you say you found it actually increased interactions, right?
1: Yes. Um, and it's hard to say which came first. Um, did the mindfulness training with acceptance um, um, motivate people to engage more with other people? Um, which then fed into their feelings of loneliness, or um, did they first um, kind of learn skills for managing these uncomfortable feelings of loneliness, um, which then uh, reduced threat and and then made them feel like engaging more in their social networks. Um, We don't know which came first. I I could see it going either way. Um, And... Really, I think we could come up with so many different explanations for um, how this happened, and it it may have differed for different people in the study. But but what we do know is that um, the people who practice acceptance um, of their present moment experiences for two weeks um, reported feeling less lonely, and they reported having a couple more uh, social interactions each day.
0: Uh-huh. And what was the time frame of the post, you know, after the, you know, was it right after the two weeks? Yeah. Or?
1: We measured the, um, these experiences in daily life for three days after the two week period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so immediately after they went through the mindfulness training, um, gotcha. we surveyed how they were feeling in daily life. So an interesting question is, uh, with an intervention, so brief two weeks, how long do these effects last? are they pretty short term are they limited to the couple of days after the intervention ends if you don't continue to practice or are you learning some sorts of skills that um that kind of you can incorporate into your daily life in ways that that last um yeah. so really lots of questions there to explore uh, in future okay. studies for sure
0: do you have <laughs> uh, the plans or the means to follow up with people in 6 months or a year
1: um, in this study, no um but i'd love to uh do another study to see um how long the effects last and whether that depends on continued meditation practice
0: mm right is it this you know my my if I put my money on lasting and actually increasing um just based on the fact that this is like recursive yeah right that so if someone You know, even if you have like a 1% improvement in your ability to connect with others, that seems like it would continue like a really virtuous cycle just all on its own.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that um, that's uh, definitely a possibility and um, an optimistic possibility as well uh, that we need to test. Well, it (laughs) it reminds
0: me of uh, Greg Walton's, you know, wise interventions thing. Mm -hmm. Where mm-hmm. like the one little the one little shift creates an environmental right. ripple. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, that's a definite possibility that if if people learn this new way of kind of interacting with their inner experiences, um, that could change the way that they're interacting with other people. It could change. Um, their behaviors in that way, uh, in ways that feed into other aspects of life. Um, uh, and it could, it could kind of balloon into something really positive and spiral upward, um, uh, just from kind of learning these skills and learning how to, um, use them in everyday life.
0: So was, was the data gathering, um, limited to, the, the, you know, the numbers, the, or did you get, um, like commentary?
1: And... Oh, um, like qualitative data. Yeah. Uh, we, That's the word. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was mostly, uh, surveys kind of rating how you feel on a one to seven scale on this thing. Uh-huh. Uh, we collected a little bit of open-ended data just but really just in terms of how people liked the, the training programs. And um, interestingly, people liked all three of the training programs. They didn't mm. necessarily like the one with acceptance better. Um, in <laughs> fact, they didn't like that one better. They, people liked all three programs. But we really only saw benefits uh, for the mindfulness uh, training with acceptance.
0: That's a, that's a really useful for, reminder for those of us who do programs. And, you know, we rely on the smile sheet at the end of like, you know, at the end of the program. How did you like it? Like that doesn't uh, tell the whole story.
1: No, it doesn't. Um, yeah. People are very complex. And um, and so uh, I think it's interesting and important to collect all sorts of data. And, and it, I mean, it really depends on what what you're going after. Are you looking to. Um, uh add add a routine to somebody's daily life that they enjoy enough to continue doing, um, maybe that's all you're after. Um, people are unlikely to continue doing something that they don't enjoy. Right. Um, but are you looking for sorts of... Um, behavioral or physiological changes, then those are things that need to be measured um, as outcomes. Um, so in this same study, we uh, brought people into the lab and stressed them out um, and, and measured their um, biological stress responses. And we found um, that the people who learned acceptance skills um, had a less extreme um, biological stress response.
0: Oh. How did you stress them out?
1: Uh, We had them give a five-minute speech um, in front of two um, critical evaluators. Okay. um, People who were um, giving cold, icy stares as feedback, um, (laughs) who were actually um, criticizing the content of, of the speech. (laughs) <laughs> I don't see how that point is relevant. <laughs> that that sort of thing. And then they did five minutes of really difficult mental math. Same thing with critical feedback throughout. Uh-huh. So it's it's um it's not a pleasant thing to have people go through, but it's um, we do it because it gives us um uh, worthwhile data um, mm-hmm. to work with to try to understand how people respond to stress and how that stress response, how that biological stress response can affect health over time.
0: Well, and it was also a biological stress response that was very relevant to social interaction. Right. And exclusion. <laughs> it wasn't just, you know,
1: right. hand in yeah.
0: ice water or hold your right.
1: breath. Mm-hmm. So we call that a social evaluative stressor. So, yeah, you're right on about that.
0: <laughs> and so, so so all the people in your study who who... Who fail then get jobs as the evaluators, right? <laughs> so you're a natural. I, I'll,
1: tell you, I'll tell you, my that's my least favorite thing to do is act <laughs> mean to other people in the lab when they're not they don't deserve it. But <laughs> but um, but it's important data to collect so that we can understand how to move around these biological factors that are important for our health.
0: That's hilarious.
1: <laughs> uh.
0: So did you come to this work through an interest in loneliness or an interest in mindfulness? or um,
1: An interest in mindfulness and mind-body practices more generally um, and really how these practices work, um, how if and how they work um, to um, improve our stress responses, how, um, our, our social experiences, our emotions, um, and ultimately our health.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, like, did you start just like as a as a meditator or a mindfulness person interested in the science? Because, like, you know, I, I studied. Yeah. this I've been studying sort of the science when it was weird, right? Like, I, okay. I in 1993, I was thinking about uh-huh. doing a dissertation on this, and uh-huh. it, you know, basically, the it was either this is all BS or uh-huh. Like the, the benefits are nothing short of like levitation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't want to yeah. what's, what's, this, what's the state of what's the state of the science of this these days?
1: It's a completely different climate now than it was in the nineties. Um, there were very few studies before two thousand, um, but um, but the number of research studies has increased exponentially, and and also the interest um, uh, from people in our society uh, has increased as well. So um, that, that kind of motivates scientists to wanna study these practices. Are they effective? How are they effective uh, for people? Um, so I think at this point in time, um, you won't get laughed out of your department if you're studying practices like mindfulness meditation, whereas it, it probably wasn't taken as seriously in the 90s um, kind of, uh, these sorts of hippie ideas about transcendental meditation. And, um, it was not as well accepted as a serious topic of scientific research. Um, but, uh, we have to be grateful for the people who, um, published research in those days to really get this field going, Mm. uh, and, and made a foundation for doing this sort of work.
0: And one of the things I was wondering as I was reading especially sentences like um where is it uh future research might untangle which process begins to change first as uh you know like the, in, investigate plausible chains of mechanistic processes like I'm mean, I'm just imagining I'm projecting onto you and other sort of mindfulness researchers a very holistic view of like life in general and biological processes and complexity Mm-hmm. Is, is is there a bit of a of a, tent, a tension between that view and what the scientific, uh, the current scientific model sort of demands in terms of mm-hmm. reductionism and chains of plausible causation?
1: Um. So you mean, are we able to study more holistically um, a person's? Uh, behaviors and interactions and feelings and health outcomes? Or, or do we necessarily need to be very specific about, well, this study is going to um, specifically test which process changes first, loneliness or number of social interactions? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, we like it's there... very narrow in our in our investigations
0: yeah to to that the, is there you know sort of interest and a career advancement and funding for questions that you might in your heart say who cares like let's just find out what works and and make it better as opposed you know like like are are there sort of tensions between what you would consider the purest scientific inquiry and the demands of of publication ah, and and career
1: i see um yeah, I think it's a there's a dance between what um, organizations like the National Institute of Health are looking to fund um, that that really kind of dictates which projects get funded and and where the research money goes. Um, that's definitely um, a consideration when thinking about what is the next research study I want to design. But at the same time, um, the NIH's priorities are around um, these large issues of, of health, <laughs> human health. Um, uh, how do we improve um, chronic pain? How do we improve um, inflammation in the body? Um, uh, These practices, maybe mindfulness practices have, um, uh, there's some great initial evidence suggesting that they're effective. So maybe we're more interested in funding, um, projects, uh, on those sorts of topics. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's, there's definitely a dance between, uh, what would I love, what question would I love to answer in my career? Um, versus what are the priorities of the funding bodies, and but I, but at the same time, I think that the ultimate goal is very similar in that we're trying to improve quality of life and health uh, for people. Um, it's just a matter of how we do that, mm-hmm. how we study that. Yeah.
0: Sure. So earlier we talked a little bit about the fact that this is sort of a, a societal loneliness is a societal problem, and meditation or mindfulness as an individual solution. Mm-hmm. Is there any, is there, you know, first of all, I guess if, if, you know, if you get a hundred million people to start meditating, that changes society. Um, but, but mm-hmm. short, short of that, because like, you know, when I teach people to eat healthy, I think everybody who stops buying, you know, Big Macs and Twinkies is is like a drop in the bucket in terms of changing the demand cycle. Mm-hmm. But, but are there specific interventions at a, organizational or governmental or social level based on your work that you think might have a, a broader influence than just sort of teaching people a skill one at a time?
1: Um, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think at this point we're kind of, um, relying on individuals to, um, Create momentum with these practices, um, spread the word uh, about how they're beneficial, um, kind of seeing more um, interest from the media, kind of spreading the word about these practices and what people get out of them. Um, I do see... um, uh, bigger companies kind of um, trying to implement these practices for their employees, having a mindfulness room, um, hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, this is part of the story. Um, you're, you're talking about um, kind of food choices. So, uh, we're talking about meditation. There's all kinds of processes that are interlinked and, um, And also separate. Um, It's just, uh, yeah. I wish I could answer the question of how how can we improve quality of life and health for the most number of people in society? Um, But I don't know what the answer is at this Mm -hmm. point. I'd love to hear ideas if you have them. (laughs)
0: Well... (laughs) One idea is it sounds like that's a pretty good career question. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> Yeah. Large scale change.
0: Yeah, just keep avoiding the traffic and submitting proposals and uh, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're in we're in good hands. Yeah. Hey, I had a question about like so you had people uh, working on an app. And uh-huh. so for people who are listening who are going, yeah, this mindfulness plus acceptance sounds like a darn good idea. Do you have an app? that people could use? Or if not, are there things you recommend?
1: Yeah. um, The the mindfulness training programs were created by a teacher called Shinzen Young. Um, He has a lot of resources on his website, shinzen.org.
0: Okay. Um, I'll I'll include a link in the show notes.
1: Okay, great. And then um, he has also... um, uh, his system of teaching meditation is the basis for the Bright Mind app, um, which is available in the App Store. Um, and then the program that we used in this study um, uh, will be available um, to individuals uh, at ebmforstress.com. Um, at this point, uh people would need to contact um, uh, the head of that company to get access to the program. But it is something that people can try out the exact program that we used in this study.
0: Okay. Great. Great. So if they go to ebmforstress.com. They, there's a, a link to contact.
1: Yeah. And authority. contact and ask for access to the program. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Um, what's, what's your next uh, bit of research?
1: Well, um, I'm looking into, um, some of the biological processes um, that might help explain how um, uh, how mindfulness training uh, might reduce loneliness in in um, lonely older adults who are 65 years and older, um, and how that might affect uh, biology in ways that could improve health over time. So I'm looking at some of the biological processes that might be changing um, in lonely older adults who are going through meditation training.
0: I see. So can you, can, um, do you hope to connect those to outcomes like, you know, inflammation and Yes, and exactly. Cholesterol
1: uh-huh. and We're not measuring cholesterol, but inflammation, yes. Uh-huh. Um, trying to understand, uh, those biological processes.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Very, <laughs> very cool. Um, so, I, you know, I reached out to you by, via the academic web, so I don't know if you have, you know, a public presence or a blog or a social media presence that you want to share with people or if there's a way for people to follow your, your research and and your career <laughs> to, to answer that big question of how can we be healthier? I, I don't
1: actually have a social media presence.
0: Well, that's, um, that's probably why you're so happy.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I I have a Google scholar page for, for people who are interested in reading scientific papers.
0: Okay. I'll Um, link, I'll link to that as well. So we'll, (laughs) we'll we'll protect your privacy and sanity then.
1: Yes. As of now, I don't, I don't have a, a blog or a, Twitter, or anything like that.
0: Okay. So you're, you're, <laughs> you're, you're unlikely to, to, uh, to make the public podcast circuit. So if people want you, they got to find you here right now.
1: Right. <laughs> have to awesome. find me the, the academic nerdy way.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, Emily, Lindsay, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation and your work is so instructive and inspiring. And it's definitely influenced how I think about uh, helping the people that I work with.
1: Very nice. Well, thank you so much for having me and for an engaging conversation. And um, yeah, thank you so much.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode, man. One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is to talk to these researchers who, to me, are rock stars, but they're not really well known outside of their own academic field. And so it's not that hard to get them to appear on podcasts, especially before they've written their first you know, best-selling book, um, anyway, I hope you found this valuable. If you did and you'd like to let people know about it, you can leave a review for on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe, then you will never miss another episode. Um, quick reminder that if you'd like to improve your own health and your, take your health destiny into your own hands, that's what Well Start Health is for. You can go to wellstarthealth.com and sign up for one of our upcoming 12-week um on ramps to health. It's a great program. Josh, uh, Lajani and I uh, are the head coaches, but we have lots of other coaches including Kevin Davis, Sarah Bofinger, Ron Tibbs and a bunch of others you'll be meeting over the next few weeks. We're really we're ramping up. In garden news, we got uh, about 70 different uh, basil plants going in the dining room under lights. Uh, Mia planted potatoes the other day. And uh, we're very excited. Our giant roll, 330 feet of 10X um, deer fencing is arriving on Friday. So hopefully we'll get that up. And we will not have to share quite so much of our bounty with critters. In running news, I registered for the Umstead Half Marathon, which is coming up uh, middle of May. And very excitingly, I posted on Facebook, I whined a little bit about uh, plantar fasciitis and Tom Delonzo Baker, the founder of Total Motion Release, um, reached out to me and spent 90 minutes on Zoom with me, going, taking me through exercises. And by the end of that 90 minutes, I had zero pain. I woke up this morning back to about a 20 out of 100, and I started doing the exercises, and it's back down to about a five. Uh, I didn't get it all the way to zero because I wanted to get this podcast up before uh, heading off for the day. But uh, if you are interested in physical therapy and in how to treat yourself and in how to treat help other people learn how to fix themselves, I can't recommend highly enough Total Motion Release, which you can find at TotalMotionRelease.com. Tom Delonzo Baker is an absolute genius and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And while I'm let's uh, keep it going with thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. Check out WillRidenour.com for more of his lovely Chora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, the people who make this show possible every single week. As in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, and Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, John then Jen Vilkenovsky, Debbie Bysig, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Smith, Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Roland Stu Dolnik, Sarah Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gila David Donna Blair Cyber, Daruna Viso, Gio Carolyn Argentati, Jodi Ruth and Thunderburk. Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the panda v, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Lashley, Corker, and Michia, Dia Norton Ani, Bonnie Lynch Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Shell Rootless, Julia Julian Watkins, Peter O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Chad Hirschman, Kate Roslund, Ayat Julie Langholm, Heather Gardisa, Susan Wachani, Hayline, Erin Greer, Alicia Davis, The Vilel, Heather O'Connor, Callen, Justin Cherry, Lakowski, Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Tevin McCauley, Luther Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, Ann, Jesse Cheryl Dwyer, Jennifer Hamilton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Meyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lungquist, Valerie Hummel, Deb Casia, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Damocorny, Stephen Lennon, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carts, Deanne Bishop, Elvary Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Walden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashar, Gunmarie Hagen, Tressie College, Laura Heeden, and Meg, for mama says... For your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Heatherly, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filikonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Swam Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Asserte, David Donahue, Blair Cybert, Toronto Viso, Gio and Carol Argetati, Jody Friesner with Anne Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva L- Lael, L- L- Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R. Susan Laverty, The Pandavian, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Fred O'Connell, Channel Hirsch- Shannon Hirschman, Nanda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, e. Isa Tuziwakani, Hayline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski, of plant Power for health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Liz Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linane Lundquist, Valerie Humble, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McEntee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leinen. Pettie DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parm Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends.